This is The Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. How are we doing? Welcome into the show. My name is Braden Dennis. As always, joined by the magnificent Simon Belanger. How are you doing, my brother? I... Uh, I'm clearly in a new new studio here. I gotta I gotta up my game with that fancy mic you have, though. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna have to send you the link so you uh, you get that set up. It's definitely game changer for sure with uh, reducing echo. I think you've sent me the link four times now, and I'm like, I'm I'm gonna prices change. (laughs) (laughs) You you could have like a a service where you just monitor Amazon prices at this point. Uh, for certain, you're getting some serious experience in it. Today, we have a great show. We're going to get into a listener question, and then we're going to talk about Canada's population growth as well, uh, latest sources. And we got a new federal government budget. So, Simon, you're going to talk about economic outlook on the macro side. And then I'm going to talk about the interesting story of... Alimentation, Couchetard, and Metro, the grocer. And um, two very Quebec origin stories. We, we, this is the most Canadian investor podcast episode of all time. This is very uh, Canadian content here today. All right. Uh, let's kick it off here. Question from Tom. I'll read the question, then you can kind of handle our answer here. Hey, Braden and Simone. I noticed a few times you guys have mentioned that trying to time the markets is difficult and should be avoided. Yet I noticed on a recent pod, you guys talked about buying, about trying to avoid buying good businesses when they're overvalued. That feels like a contradiction to not trying to time the markets thing. Maybe I'm misunderstanding. Hoping you can clear things up. Love the podcast. Keep up the amazing work. I think this is actually a great question because they can feel contradictory. How are you, uh, how are you thinking about this one? Yeah, I think that's a great question uh, from Tom. So I'll speak for myself, but I think we have similar approaches here. And like I mentioned before on the podcast, I like to buy great businesses, but I like to buy them and I can hold them for long periods of time. But obviously, timing the market is impossible to do consistently. We've talked about that time and time again. There's an important distinction here between timing the market and buying a company at a valuation that seems reasonable for what you're getting. And I think that's the important nuance because at the end of the day, you can look at a company, have a certain valuation in mind, For the company to hit that valuation, you buy the company and then it just keeps getting lower. So you're not, you know, it's, it's definitely different than, than timing the market. If you overpay for a company, even for a wonderful company, there's a good probability that it won't end up being a good investment just because the price you paid was too high. And, uh, perfect example, in my opinion, is Microsoft. And that one is cited quite a bit. So some people may be familiar with this one. Microsoft as a company clearly has changed a lot over the years, but it's been a really good company for a long time, especially in the enterprise space, the operating system, if we're thinking about Windows, um, also their productivity tools with Microsoft Office. That's been a thing since pretty much when they 
took over, not, not took over, but took the lead over, I think it was Corel, which was Ottawa-based, that used to be the tool in the 1990s, and then I think it was WordPerfect, if I remember correctly, I'm dating yeah. myself a little and bit. And email, it was yeah. Lotus Notes. Those are the old, yeah, exactly. the old tools, yeah. yeah. And Microsoft peaked around $60 a share during the tech bubble in late 1999, and it took them 16 years to reach that price again. Clearly, there were some dividends in there, so if you factor that in, they they probably had slightly more than just break-even during that time, but you would have easily outperformed Microsoft during that time with just purchasing a S&P 500 index fund, which you could argue was also overvalued during the peak of the tech bubble, but clearly less than Microsoft, who was directly in that industry. And if I learned something over the last couple of years that I need to put more importance on valuation, not that I did not put any importance on it before, but the higher the valuation, the more things have to go perfectly for the company so essentially you have less of a margin of safety the higher you pay the higher price or a higher valuation you pay for the company so unless there's a broad market crash or the markets are bearish on a specific sector it's very rare to find a great business at a cheap valuation however you'll see that the value of these businesses actually does fluctuate and those businesses will hit more value reasonable valuations from time to time it might not last a long period of time but it will happen at some point and one that comes to mind is one that i bought recently asml so we've talked about it a whole lot in the past year so i encourage people to go back to those episodes if they want to learn more about it but essentially asml has a monopoly on extreme ultraviolet machines which are just machines that are used to produce the most advanced chips that's the easiest easiest way to sum it up and the demand for its machines is as strong as ever from customers like taiwan semiconductor company tsmc The problem with ASML is that the valuation is always pretty high. I mean, it's a profitable business. It's a monopoly. But back in the fall, what happened is the market was really bearish on semiconductors, especially TSMC and ASML because of geopolitical concerns, but also... um, semiconductor designers like an AMD or NVIDIA just because the medium-term outlook wasn't looking great with uh, this industry being notoriously cyclical. So those two companies, TSMC and ASML, actually took some pretty big hit to their valuation. And that's when I decided to start a position in ASML because my assessment was that those concerns were overblown, not that they there won't be any impact if things escalate between China and the U.S. because there clearly will be. But the you know aggregate of the various possible outcomes still made ASML a very attractive investment. And that's just an example here. But I still paid, you know, if you ask people that are into value investing, I paid a super high multiple for ASML at the time that I purchased. I paid it was in the high 20s in terms of PE ratios. If uh, people want to wrap their heads around it, I can't remember off top of my head what the price of free cash flow was, but it was relatively high as well compared to, let's say, a bit more traditional businesses. And a value investor would see that and would think, wow, you clearly overpaid. But for a company like ASML that has a monopoly and I think a pretty good 
growth one runway, that valuation was actually reasonable. But I didn't get it at the, the bottom either. It actually went down a bit more and then went back up afterwards. So there's a couple ways I can take this is right then in your explanation, you are not trying to time the bottom of ASML because you you didn't and had no expectation of it. You just thought compared to historical norms, historical multiples, it is trading much cheaper than it has for one of the great businesses in this world. And so you thought it was an advantageous. To me, this is more of a macro versus a micro question. I do not try to, from a macro perspective, time the market or think I have any sort of edge on where the broader market is going to head in the next three, six months. On a micro perspective, the valuations of businesses can change dramatically over a short period of time. And this is why when you have a list of great businesses that just tend to trade too high, March of 2020 rolls around for me and I loaded up on a few really high quality names that all got destroyed, you know, 30% in basically a couple of weeks for no real reason, or maybe they were going to even be benefactors from a stay at home situation. That's me being advantageous versus me saying, this can get a lot worse. I'm going to wait till the bottom. That would be how, that would be a mistake for my opinion on trying to time the market, something I can't do. Something that, you know, when it happens, you mostly just got lucky. And so that's the way I'm thinking about it logically, because I do think it's silly to say, you know, you're never going to time the market. So don't try to be advantageous of opportunities. That's the whole goal as an investor. If you're buying individual securities is to try to be advantageous, not to be confused with, I'm going to try to time the bottom or I'm not going to invest any money until there's a market correction. You know, you could have done that from basically 2009 all the way to 2020, sat with sat on your hands for, you know, 12 years waiting for a market correction that never happened during that time stretch and you lost in, you know, couple couple bags of the S&P gains during that time. And so that's to me trying to time the market versus waiting for a fat pitch or, or, or sorry, a fat pitch coming across the plate and you swinging is different than trying to time and wait and wait and wait for some fat pitch that might never ever come. Um, and so I get that they're a little bit contradictory and this is what makes it more art than science in, in my opinion. Uh, but I think it's a great question because it's something that people think about all the time and struggle with and, and something you and I will think about and struggle with as investors for as long as we do it as well. Yeah. And the way I do it, I know we're a little different there, but I have the I'm lucky enough to have a work pension. It's a def- defined contribution pension where essentially my employer matches my contributions up to a certain amount. And every time I get paid every two weeks, that money is invested right away into an index fund. It's a global index funds that has, you know, allocation to a lot of 
familiar name, especially U.S. ones in terms of the top holdings. And that happens consistently. So I'm always investing in the market and then the extra money that I put on my own. Of course, I try to be, I would say, yeah, like not necessarily just opportunistic for the most part. So I have a list of companies that I I really love and if i find one of those companies that have strong conviction is that for whatever reason the valuation is down and i don't think it's uh you know a, a valid reason let's just say for the long-term thesis then i will definitely take advantage of that so that's kind of the mindset i like to take but again I think having a general valuation where you want to invest into a company is way different than trying to time it because you may have that valuation in mind, but trust me, it's happened to me multiple times where it hits a certain valuation, I invest in it, and then it goes down another 10% or something like that. So, And that's fine. I mean, I'm comfortable with that's the, price the of admission. assessment I did. Exactly. That's it. That's the price of admission. Mm-hmm. And let me just say like, what I personally do, like I can say like some, uh, you know, playbook, but this is actually what I do. Every single month, I have a set contribution of what I am going to commit to investing every single month. And I dollar cost average that uh, very consistently. So this is me. This is me not trying to time the market. It's me trying to add to my positions over time, long period of time, keep compounding it, no matter what the market's doing. That's me not trying to time the market. And there have been several circumstances where I have massively dumped cash and increased that uh, that dollar cost average if I see a, uh, an opportunity. March 2020 is a perfect example. I almost luckily just timed the bottom. It could have went another 25% down. The world is ending the global pandemic. Ah, it could have, that could have happened, but... I saw something like Visa MasterCard marked down 30% on a business that, look, you know, it doesn't matter if you're in person or online, you're doing transactions, it's going through the payment rails. And so that that's when I went aggressive and probably did, you know, a whole year's worth of contributions in, in you know, one month. It's kind of like, you know, <laughs> empty, <laughs> empty the war chest. Hope nothing goes wrong because that emergency fund is around, it doesn't exist anymore. And, you know, I'm comfortable taking that level of risk. Uh, should everyone? No. Um, and so this is really a kind of a personal thing. And this is a great, great, this great topic, really. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say, and we've I mentioned this a bit more recently in the past year because it has changed where, you know, you can actually get pretty close to inflation, not quite on cash with, you know, instruments like money market funds or a high interest savings account. I know we, you know, EQ Bank always has our sponsor. They always have some of the top rates. But, you know, for people who want to keep money in their brokerage account, uh, you can have money market funds that give you pretty close to like 5% on your cash. So you do have that alternative. If you find that things are quite expensive, you have that extra flexibility of waiting a little longer and knowing that you're not, you know, your purchasing power is not getting slaughtered like it was a year and a half ago when interest rates were at record lows and inflation was at, you know, 8% or so. So I think that's, you know, it's, it's good to adjust as well as things change because it's an extra tool in your toolkit. Um, I think that's, that's good to remind people. Canada's population is exploding uh, on a percentage basis. 
The uh, New York Times says Canada grew a record one million people from immigration. The country's growth was fueled almost entirely by newcomers as the federal government pushes more immigration to plug labor shortages. Here, last, uh, here it is quoted, last year Canada added over 437,000 immigrants and an additional 608,000 non-permanent residences. Uh, non-permanent residents, sorry, not residences. We need more residences. <laughs> we need a lot more residences. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Such as refugees and those on study or work permits, the census agency said in its report, if the it said the Russian invasion of Ukraine was one of the largest driving factors of net increase in each province of non-permanent residents. Uh, that's quite fascinating. Well, I know we have a gigantic Ukrainian population in Canada. There's over a million Ukrainians before all of this already in Canada. I think I think it is the largest population of Ukrainians outside of Ukraine uh, is Canada. I have to look that up on my next thing, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that's true. From CIBC, total population grew by a record 1.05 million to reach 39.57 million. So, so we are closing in or already hit 40 million. Probably already have, right? Like it's that was till Jan 1st. We're now through the first quarter. We got to be at 40 mil now, probably. Yeah, I mean, if the same levels continued, and I'll just say, um, I guess, yeah, it's probably close, I would say. Yeah, probably right around there. Uh, right like around there. You know, you know at yeah, any right moment, there may be, the 40 millionth person yeah. walking through the door. I would say probably at some point in the next couple of quarters would yeah. be when we hit it. But, you know, I did do my part. With our little lady, I mean, yeah, yeah, one yes, extra, one extra, one extra Belanger is uh, <laughs> is of this world in Canada. So yeah, I did my part. <laughs> Time for me to get busy. Uh, about ninety six percent of the rise was due to immigration. Uh, so this was this was confirming what NYT was saying. Uh, more from CBC. Uh, the increase helped Canada retain its position as the fastest growing G7 country. Okay, very interesting. Uh, 2.7% population growth rate. And uh, this rate would lead to the population doubling, but every 26 years. So a 2.7% number, and you know, doing the math, okay, it doubles every 26 years. This is what people need to think about with inflation too, right? Like usually in a normal time, we're at that kind of number, and it contextualizes that it is worth half as much, you know, 26 years later. So think about when inflation is running at the numbers we have it now, uh, what that does to the doubling uh, every once in a while. So very interesting. Now, I got a third piece here for the segment, a study conducted in 2021 by Boston Consulting Group, BCG. The U.S. falls behind Canada as a work destination. Pandemic lowers mobility in global workforce study. Uh, quote, only about 50% of people are willing to move to another country for work, according to the survey, which included 209,000 participants in 190 countries. So, okay, pretty good sample size. That's down from a 64% willingness level in 2014. Uh, the lower willingness to re relocate was expressed by respondents in nearly every country in the world. 
Very fascinating. I, you got to think like uh, the work from anywhere definitely has a big impact on this. You know, you, you can enjoy a US pay company and live in Bali. <laughs> you know, like that's, that sounds pretty good. Uh, so maybe that's got something to do with it. But it looks like that was a trend that was already happening before. Yeah, I don't know what to make of yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think because it was done in 2021, I think there's probably some COVID impact to that, whereas yeah. people may have been more reluctant to travel for different reasons for work, right? So I think there's probably part of that. I think it'll be interesting if they do a similar survey a couple of years down the line, what the trend is. If it continues being lower and lower, then you think you have a trend. But my suspicion is, you know, maybe it'll be back at around, you know, close to the 2018 levels of 57% or so, maybe like 55% or something like that. Uh, I should include here, I did a Twitter poll last night that now has almost a thousand votes. I forgot to include this. Let me paste this in. Here you go. So I put a Twitter poll out last night. I said, please only answer the poll if you're working five days a week in the office before 2020. So if you've been, if you were, uh, you know, nine to five or five days a week in the office before the pandemic, how often are you going in now? And I am shocked at how even this is. So the number one most picked answer was 28.6% that they are back to five days. So a little over a quarter of people are back to five days in the office. And in another quarter, 25.9% are saying never. So very interesting. So quarter of people are back five days. And of course, this is 737 votes. And there's still some time left on the poll, but decent, decent data set here. And a quarter are never, never going in. Roughly a quarter on three to four days a week and roughly a quarter of one, two days a week. So we got half people at hybrid, a quarter at full back and a quarter never this lines up pretty similarly to what I would have expected. But the fact that roughly half of people are either going in never or just one day a week from their five days a week is pretty crazy that that how persistent that trend has been. And it comes down to in this labor market, it is hard to like em employees have had the power. Uh, during this time, yeah. so it's it's really hard for these employers to push uh, something. Maybe on them. not that long with our population growth. But <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I'm laughing, but it is one of the reason, right? They're doing it to try and. Uh, you know, alleviate some of the labor shortages yeah. that we're seeing across the economy. So that's one of the big reasons. Um, oh, and, and of course, to bring be... in some more voters <laughs> for yeah. the current party. <laughs> But we don't yeah, get political we'll, here. We won't, yeah, yeah, exactly. We won't get into that. And I will talk about the budget, but I will keep it um, just, you know, not political. Keeping um, the Thanksgiving last thing I'll dinner, say, Simo. Thanksgiving dinner, Easter dinner coming up. Yeah, but uh, 
the last thing I'll say for here is I'm looking to do a segment in the next little while to look at how office real estate is trending in Canada because there's been a lot of data out there and I do have a small position in allied property REIT so I have vested interest in doing a segment like that um, but comparing that with what we're seeing in the US because there is some potentially big problems brewing in the US uh, especially with regional banks ha- being on the hook for the figures I've seen and heard is about 400 billion in commercial real estate loans tied you know a lot to the the sector of office real estate where they're seeing extremely high vacancies so when those loans come up higher interest rates regional banks being under pressured as we know with the SVB collapse and a couple of other banks we've seen in the US um, there could be some pretty big problems brewing in that space and I want to compare it how it fares in Canada versus the US also seeing where you know in general the debt is located in Canada and you know your little poll made me think about that because clearly you know, what we're seeing in this poll is leading to higher vacancy rates when it comes to commercial real estate, especially specifically office real estate. I saw that there is someone posted that less, I think 46% or 43% of Toronto real estate uh, office is back to full occupancy, still less than half. Uh, it's, uh, it's, yeah, exactly. it's a trend that's persisted more than I would have expected. Yeah, that's it. So, um, as something I'm looking to do, maybe, uh, maybe I'll work and collab with, uh, you know, Dan and Nick. Who knows? Um, because I know they're they're in the know when it comes to that. I'm just putting it out there. Maybe, uh, they'll they'll text me when they hear this episode <laughs> about it. Um, but yeah, that's about it. So, are we good to to move on to yeah the federal budget? The fed, so the federal budget. Let's do it. So I wanted just to focus on the economic outlook because clearly, you know, it's a big budget. There's a lot of stuff, um, you know, to unpack. And I'm sure those are interested. I've already dug up whether, you know, you like what's in there or not. I I don't want to get into that because, you know, we try to stay away from politics. But I thought it was pretty interesting just looking at their economic outlook just to see you know, where they think things are going, because typically governments, and it's not specific here to the liberals, I mean, I think you can go back to pretty much any government, is that, you know, they try not to be too pessimistic in their budgets, right? They try to paint a picture that things are improving, things are going well. Um, So this one was a bit different, and I think that's really interesting from that perspective. So, At the beginning of the budget document, if you download it as a PDF, I think it's like 300 and something pages, you'll find the government's economic outlook. It's roughly, I think, 20 pages or so, if I remember correctly. And it's important to understand because whether it's realistic or not, it's going to have a big impact on the government's finances because clearly a slower economic outlook or more pessimistic will just mean less tax revenues for the government. For example, it means less money from capital gains because chances are, you know, people are not seeing as much capital gains, whether it's uh, selling a business or, you know, typically if the economy kind of goes down, 
you can make a case that there's going to be less capital gains from like just selling stocks, for example, uh, less money from income taxes. Clearly, if some people are losing their jobs, there's going to be less income tied to that and less money from sales tax, because if you lost your job again, chances are that you're cutting back on your spending. And clearly that will affect uh, tax revenues from for government. And before I chat about the economic outlook, I think it's important to point out some of the economic data that they use. So they use real GDP growth um, quite a bit. And unfortunately, I think it's a bit unfortunate that they use that because I personally think it's not a great metric. I think GDP per capita is much better, but may not look as good in terms of using it. And I don't know what past you know parties have done. I suspect they probably did a similar thing, but that's just a little pet peeve of me is just GDP growth. Uh, it's just not a great metric because if you think about it, we just saw, you know, a million uh new people arriving to Canada. Well, if the GDP stays stable, but your population doesn't increase, okay, so the you know GDP per capita stays stable. But if the GDP stays stable, it may be, okay, we did not enter a recession, but you've increased your population by a million. Well, it's a lot less rosy than, you know, just looking at GDP. And that's how it can skew things a little bit. Um, any comments on that? No, I think it's a good point. I mean, this Per, the per capita piece is an important piece. Like it's, yeah, exactly. And it's not just on governments, right? Even like mainstream media, they tend to use just GDP when they talk about you know recessions, economic growth. They never talk about GDP per capita, which is a bit more tied to, um, I guess, how efficient is the the overall economy. But anyways, that's just a little pet peeve that I have. And one thing that I did you like- You got to think like how much commodity price fluctuations too, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and one thing that I did like is that they added like a graph that they spoke about consumer and business confidence, which has been trending down. So clearly that's not the best sign. And for consumers, it means pulling back on spending. And for businesses, it means uh, dialing back on investments or making less investments. And they also had a chart in terms of the interest rate forecast. So they even went ahead and put that chart, which is based <laughs> on the future. So, you know, the markets. Uh, you must not listen to the podcast, you know, putting out <laughs> interest rate forecast charts. Well, I mean, yeah, and they took it, I think it was from the um, the futures market, uh, but clearly the futures market has been wrong before and they'll be wrong again. But I think it's just interesting to to show that they're, they're and based on that, my assumption is the federal government is anticipating a a pivot. Let's just say that from the uh, central banks, because it's uh, currently, you know, around, I think, four and a half percent, I think, in Canada uh, right now. And they're forecasting here by 2025 that it'll be down around three percent. But that's based on market expectations. But they did have it on the economic outlook. Now, they mentioned that they surveyed the private sector, private sector economists. And based on that, here are the projections. They expect a shallow recession resulting in a decline, peak to throt of 0.4% in real GDP. And for those who are not familiar, real GDP just essentially includes the impacts of inflation. So it kind of normalizes, you know, it takes inflation into account. 
On an annual basis, real GDP should grow 0.3%. Unemployment rate is expected to rise from 5 to 6.3%. So that's a pretty big increase right there. Um, the thing about an unemployment rate, though, is it's it's not the best metric because it also... It doesn't take into account people who have given up looking for a job. And that's one of the main criticism of unemployment rate because you have to be actively looking for a job and not have one to fall into that 5% to, you know, that 5% bucket currently. Inflation is expected to fall below 3% in Q3 of 2023 and to reach 2% in Q2 of 2024. And before I continue... What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> um, I don't know if I have any particularly hot takes. I mean, them going out and, and posting this, you know, chart 15, Canada and the United States policy rate expectations that it's going to, you know, trend down. Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, sure. We'll take that as a, as a data point. All the previous data points from them have not been particularly useful, but nonetheless, We'll take it as a data point. I think the big question here is just like, where does, for me, I think it's like, where does inflation like land? And then where does that go in the next 12 months and how that affects consumer confidence a lot? Because you're just seeing a lot of softness and just in general conversation with like the people who can afford nice things and are wealthy are doing great. Uh, and, and the people who, who are, who are but, you know, paycheck to paycheck who are, you know, just, just getting by before those numbers just don't work anymore. The math isn't mathing. And that's going to be, uh, that's the real problem there. There's a big kind of disparity. Yeah. And, you know, I'm listening right now to one of the books of Ray Dalio. I think it's Navigating Big Debt Crises or something like that. I always butcher his titles, but uh, it's it's interesting listening to the book and seeing what's happening right now with banks or even, you know, government spending, not only in Canada, but globally. And a lot of the things that he mentioned in his book, which, by the way, is like five years old you know, is we're seeing happening right now. And the inflation projection, I think that's a little bit dangerous to do just because we saw, um, I think it's OPEC plus, uh, they announced uh, pretty significant cuts in the oil production, which just shot up the oil price yesterday. And if oil gets more expensive, yes, it's good for parts of the economy of Canada out West specifically, but it's also going to be a big you know, it's going to fuel inflation and no pun intended. Yeah, it's super, infla- yeah. it's yeah. super inflation. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. and I, I they do mention that there are things that could happen and uh, there's a range. They'll just of- strip it out of the CPI number. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the core CPI. But uh, what I'm saying is I think making these kind of projections, it's really tricky um, and I don't want to make them. I've listened to really a lot of macro people and I've seen people who say similar things to what the government is saying here. And I've seen people saying that, uh, basically, we're entering a, a decade of high inflation. So we'll see. I think there's a lot of different factors involved. And now the last thing they say in the economic statement here, well, in terms of my takeaways, is their overall 
GDP, which is nominal, so that includes, um, you know, it's not adjusted for inflation. Projection, so the projection for Canada are much lower than the fall economic update. So things have changed quite significantly in terms of the economic outlook from their perspective. They are now projecting it to be lower by 16 billion per year on average compared to the downside scenario in late 2022. So now their base case is actually lower than what they were projecting in the fall. And obviously there's been things that have happened since that, you know, have made made things a bit uh, trickier and I know you're playing with the document which is making things oh, jump yes. around but I just that's okay. grabbed a huge <laughs> piece of the document and moved it around that's all good <laughs> um, and the last thing I think that sums it up well here is directly from the budget document and I quote Canada's near term economic outlook remains uncertain while the February 2023 survey of economists suggests a shallow recession 2023. The wide range of views amongst forecaster highlights many plausible outcomes ranging from a soft landing to a more pronounced downturn. So the base case is that we'll see a softer recession but it could potentially be worse and again um, there's a lot of things to unpack in the budget but I just wanted to look at what they're saying in terms of the economic outlook and what's you know I don't want to be alarmist here but like I mentioned before typically governments will want to paint a somewhat rosy picture Uh, so I think it's important to take note that they are not painting that rosy of a picture. So um, that's pretty unusual for a government in power to do. Um, so something I just found it interesting. Like like I said, I'm not looking to say one way or another, like we don't get political here, uh, but it's hard to not take note when the, the government in power kind of says like, oh, things are going to get a, a little tricky for the years to come. Did you notice that they did the buyback tax confirmation? Well, yeah, I mean, that that was a given. To me, that was automatic that it would be, <laughs> it would be yeah. happening. Yeah. For those who don't know what we're talking about, the, um, yeah, the U.S. kind of paved the way on this one by implementing a buyback tax. And so this Canadian fall economic statement announced that the uh, – the government would, or sorry, they confirmed that that statement will introduce a 2% tax on the net value of all types of share buybacks by public corporations in Canada, effective Jan 1, 24. So there it is. We yeah. kind of already knew this, but... Yeah, yeah. they had announced it. And uh, in the US, it was effective, I think, January 1st of this year. But it's 1% and then it'll be 2% for Canada. Um, I will be fascinated to see data on public businesses if we start seeing a little bit of a shift. I don't think it would be a massive shift, but a bit of a shift to companies... Uh, maybe changing their behavior for capital allocation, whether it's investing a bit more in the business because they don't want to pay that buyback tax or maybe doing a bit more dividends over the uh, buyback tax. So that's 
that'll be interesting if we see that. I think the government's intent is to clearly collect more taxes on the one hand, but on the second hand, I think their stated intent is to encourage investment so that the companies actually reinvest in the business and therefore create more job opportunities. I actually think it's a good idea. And I'm not a tax. I'm I'm usually, you know, yeah, I mean, less tax <laughs> is better. Like that's, you know, I'm not a big tax guy. Uh, whoever whoever says that actually, you know, I don't think I've ever heard that. I love paying tax. Is you know, who, who in the world's ever said that? But I actually think this is a pretty decent idea for a lot of these companies to to think about capital allocation a little more. I don't know if the two percent moves the needle at all, or you know, Q four we just get like a dump of buybacks from these companies. <laughs> you know, just like move it off the balance sheet, buy the stock now because we don't want to pay the 2% next year. I don't know if that'll happen. I guess we'll see, does the 2% move the needle on buyback decisions? My guess is it's not enough, but it it, it might be, you know, if they're, if they're humming and hawing on a certain number, it, it might, you know, move the needle from that perspective to another decision to invest in the business or pay more to the div. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. And the government doesn't hate the div, right? Because if they pay it as a dividend, the dividend's already taxed, so they'll get revenue That's from right. there. Um so yeah. It's basically double taxed. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you can get some tax credits, but yes, it's definitely it's taxed at a higher rate for um, than the the buyback. And maybe you know, maybe there's a positive lining because you know we've seen companies buy back stocks before at like the peak. So maybe it'll prevent some companies from doing some stupid buyback decisions. Protect them from themselves. <laughs> exactly, because there is nothing worse than. Reading on a financial statement, you know, their annual report, they bought back, you know, X amount of stock for whatever at an average price of whatever. And then one year later, the price is like cut in half. It's like, oh, yeah, what a great capital allocation strategy you guys did there. Uh, could maybe paying a dividend could be something to to think about. That was the story of Meta and Facebook over the last like three years. Oh, yeah. It's like... <laughs> Oh my God, they're cannibals of their business, buying back all the stock, just eating up all the shares. And the stock just went lower and lower and lower. Yeah. I'm going to get a better time now, but yeah. Yeah, I've done The year of efficiency, baby. Oh yeah, that's it. The year of efficiency. (laughs) I mean, if buyback is done correctly, it, it... It does bring a lot of value to shareholder, but that's that's the issue. I mean, I think I think a lot of public companies have no idea what they're doing when they buy back their own shares. Unfortunately, you think they would be able to identify when it's good value versus not. But um, I mean, we saw a wet slew of buybacks during like 2021 especially 2020 companies were a little more conservative because there was still the you know COVID-19 was new they wanted to have a bit more uh, kind of a cushion just in case and then interest rates were low the floodgates just opened 2021 you saw tons of buybacks to essentially you know the markets was they were at all-time high so a lot of companies like did not do a very good job there. Yeah, for the for the most part. I mean, yeah. you look at like the the banks and they just had they were not allowed to do anything with their capital for a long time. So they're like, "Hey, we need to do something with our balance sheets here." 
Um, so we'll give them the, the benefit of the doubt. But you're right. I mean, The irrationality was all over the place. Everywhere you looked, it was euphoric. Oh, yeah. And uh, the buybacks, too. Look no further than Met. Oh, my God. The, the Meta buybacks. How much capital did they buy their stock at? Like 150 bucks from now. And it's, and it's rallied a lot since then. Yeah. <laughs> since the low. We, like, need what, to, uh, just... we need to also look at uh, IPOs because we haven't looked at it recently i know last year was mm. a down year but just looking at the first quarter of this year it'll be interesting what uh ipos look like mm. i'm gonna say still not great uh but we saw that explosion in 2021 and i guess the back end of 2020 as well i'm just looking at meta had a peak to trough drawdown of 76 percent from September to November, from September 21 to November 22. So a year and a month, a trillion dollar company had a drawdown of 76%. That is insane, dude. Well, it's good value if you like the Zuckerberg. The Zuckerberg. Yeah. Yeah, it's rallied 136%, but it, it's still almost not quite half of what... It was at the peak. Uh, yeah, 300 peaked to like 370. It's 214 today. So uh, quite, the, quite the rally off the low, but holy smokes. I didn't even think that was possible. I mean, the, the trillion dollar status is just insane. And then to think that it had a 76% drawdown from there when its core businesses were fully intact. The, the fundamentals of the core business fully fine. Uh, you just had capital allocation value destruction with the buybacks and the meta reality labs to make no one want to own the stock in that 11, in that 13 months. That's exceptional. Like the, <laughs> the market is defies gravity all the time. Um, I think I'll leave this Kushtard thing for next week. What do you think? I think we, I think we're done. Here. Yeah, I think this we're Kushtard good. Kushtard story. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a good one. I'll save it for another time. All right. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you very much. If you haven't smashed the five stars on the pod, we really appreciate that you do that. Uh, make sure you're subscribed, followed on the player. I'm finally moved into my new spot, so I'm not dancing around on planes and the beaches of Costa Rica. So that means that. It's time to do video here. I know we've been, dude, we're, we're such we're such phonies. I've been talking about implementing video on the podcast for however long. Um, but now I have no excuses. So that means yeah. it's time to, to do it. It's so, coming. It's coming. So uh, the, the folks have been asking. You'll see, uh, you'll see our uh, faces for radio up on, uh, up on the show here if you listen on YouTube or something. We, we're, we're still scheming out how we're going to do it. But if you're on the podcast player and you've been listening, or it's your first time listening, and you haven't smashed that follow or subscribe button, what you doing? Uh, go ahead and do that. It takes two, 13 seconds tops. So go ahead and do that. We'll see you in a few days. Take care. Bye-bye. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.